Welcome to a very refreshing hour of business talk. This is Game Changing Business Model Disruption, presented by SAP. The best run businesses run SAP. You'll hear from the innovators who know how to use game changing technologies and business strategies to help you shake up the status quo in your company's business capabilities and move your organization in exciting new directions. Now, here's your host and moderator, Bonnie D. Graham. Yes, indeed. Welcome and welcome. If you know the code, that means I have two guests today. So let's see what the buzz on the street is. And by the way, if you want to run with the game changers, this is where the best run. Absolutely, positively. Let's see what the buzz is today. I have a quote from somebody named Kevin Rands, R-A-N-D-S, founder of Disruptor Daily, an emergency, emerging, probably emergency, emerging technology news site dedicated to covering the latest disruption, trends, news, and opportunities. And he's the CEO of Online Health Networks. Very interesting. So let's see what the quote is. Disruption is one of those words that gets thrown around an awful lot. Today, disruption is often used synonymously with both innovation and transformation. Well, of course, you're listening to game-changing business model disruption, so what a great quote to open our show. So let's talk about what we're going to discuss today. Welcome to the platform era. You hear me say that every time we do the show, and it's true. If you're still stuck in status quo, same old, same old business models, it's not going to work anymore. You've all heard of Uber and Airbnb and Amazon. They are doing amazing jobs at being upstarts that are extremely successful. If there's a company like that lurking in the shadows, eyeing your market, you'd better beware. What are the big businesses doing that are most successful? Largest businesses today by market capitalization are now platform-based business models that have disrupted and grown at amazing rates. So how can you survive? Well, you've got to do a couple things. You've got to embrace new agile technologies. You've got to be an agile company to do that. You've got to unleash your ecosystem's power. Yes, there is an ecosystem waiting for you to be part of it and to encourage it and just make it happen. And you have to adapt your business culturally. Yeah, that's talking about people culturally. So let's see what we have today. We have two experts on the panel, as I said, and our topic is digital disruption. Is it a threat? Is it an opportunity or could it be both? This is part two of a topic we covered a couple of months ago, February 23rd in 2018. And I'm bringing back two of our three panelists from that show. In just a moment, we'll be hearing from Alan W. Brown spelled just the way it sounds. First name is A-L-A-N. Professor of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Business School at the University of Surrey. And we'll find out what Alan has been up to in the months since we last spoke. And of course, one of the sponsors of this series at SAP, Mark Geall, G-E-A-L-L, if you're looking for him. Senior VP and Global Head of SAP Cloud Platform Ecosystem at SAP. And there's that ecosystem word. So welcome back to our two panelists. And let's start off with a quote from Alan Brown to send us a quote from Jason Jennings. I never heard of Jason Jennings, but apparently I should have. He's the author of It's Not the Big That Eat the Small, It's the Fast That Eat the Slow, published back in 2002. And guess what? That's the quote Alan Brown has brought us, the title of the book. One more thing, Jason Jennings also wrote The Reinventors, How Extraordinary Companies Pursue Radical Continuous Change. And that book was from 2012. Professor Brown, welcome back. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much, Bonnie. 
Thank you for joining me and talk to me. Uh, have you read the book? Have you read it a couple times? Tell me about why Jason Jennings is so important to our topic today. Well, I think Jason picks up on a topic that's really important. As you mentioned in your introduction, we're dealing in a world that is increasingly frustrated by the speed of change. It's frustrated in both dimensions, both in terms of the opportunity that seems to be there, but the inability to be able to react fast enough to take advantage of those opportunities. And we see companies that are succeeding as being the ones that are able to find ways to move at the, at the, at the speed of the opportunity, at the speed of the organizations they're trying to um, disrupt, at the speed of their clients and their customers and their, their potential users of their services. So that quote for me is quite an important one because it, it emphasizes to people that it's not about building bulk in an organization. It's not about establishing a footprint, which means you can dominate a market. It's about being cognizant of the fact that, that the opportunity will evaporate if you don't take advantage of it, if you don't execute. And in this um, agile world we're in, in a sense, execution is everything. So for me, that's really important, and it's the emphasis of the book, and it's the emphasis of, of quite a few of the conversations I've been having since we last talked. Very interesting, Alan. I'm, I'm very intrigued because we, I had a quote from somebody on the show last week. Uh, I think the quote was, if size mattered, the, the elephant would be the king of the jungle. And I think I think that's very, very similar. Not the big that eat the small, it's the fast. And we know that elephants are not particularly fast. They may have a great memory, right, Alan? Don't they say memory is good as an elephant's? I don't know how anybody knows that scientifically. But but anyway, very, very interesting. It used to be in business that the bigger you got, you thought you could just gobble up the market and just keep being strong. Just reference, if you don't mind, you're, you're in the UK. Uh, when you hear things like, yes, we have to watch out for Uber, Airbnb, Amazon knows so much about everybody and it's just gobbling up all kinds of markets and buying companies. Does that resonate with Europe? Because I'm in the U.S. and I'm wondering, do those kind of mantras, watch out for Uber, watch out for Airbnb, does that resonate in, in the European markets today? Yes, of course. I think it, it, uh, it matters throughout the world. And in fact, looking west is interesting, but also looking east, looking to Alibaba and Alipay looking mm-hmm. to Weibo, looking to some of the um, bike-sharing schemes of, of uh, Ovo and some of the others. These sorts of dominant market shares that the, these organizations have, as you mentioned, partly because they're, they're creating platform-based business models and mm-hmm. they're dominating ecosystems and creating quite vibrant ecosystems around the services they offer, but also because they're able to take advantage of size and flexibility in large organizations. And I think perhaps one of the secrets, if if there is one, for growing and scaling and keeping agile is the idea of platforms and ecosystems. And I'm sure this is a topic we'll cover today. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Alan, I have to tell you, your voice is so calming. It's so wonderful. (laughs) I'm up off the top of the chart, and you're just steady and there. Your students must love your voice. Do you ever get comments on that? Well, as long as they don't fall asleep in my class, I'm very, 
<laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that at all. I just got a comment from my engineer that you are on a wonderful phone connection. You are crystal clear, so we're going to keep you where you are. Thank you, Alan. Professor Brown, really happy to have you back. And now let's turn to Mark Giel, who put this together. And Mark is quoting another Mark, a famous Mark whose last name begins with Z, and he spells his first name M-A-R-K. Zuckerberg, of course, a young man in his 30s, and he's an American tech entrepreneur and philanthropist. That's interesting. Best known for co-founding and leading Facebook as his chairman and CEO. Interestingly enough, he was born in White Plains. I was born in Queens, New York, not far, but decades apart. He attended Harvard University. If anybody saw the movie, The Social Network, like it, leave it or love it, it did tell most of the story of how Facebook started. It was just for people to get to know who was at the college and it caught on and just took the world by by power. Uh, December 2016, Forbes ranked Mark Zuckerberg 10th on its list of the world's most powerful people and he has been named since 2010 by Time Magazine among the 100 wealthiest and most influential people in the world. His network took his net worth took a huge crash a couple of weeks ago, uh, but it doesn't really matter because he's still right up there. So here is the quote Marcus selected from the other Mark, Mark Z. Move fast and break things. Mark Giel, good morning, good afternoon, and tell me how you found this quote. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you, Bonnie. Um, how did I find this quote? Um, just really playing off that whole agility theme that uh, that uh, Alan sort of mentioned and alluded to, right? This is one of the one of the, the sort of the, the key mantras that, that that we see at the moment in terms of companies needing to to be agile. They need to move quickly. Um, and what I like about this quote is that you also need to break things. You need to to break the status quo. You need to break your existing business processes and business capabilities. Um, but also with some of the new stuff, right? You, it's not necessarily going to work first time. So, you know, don't be scared if, if what you try initially isn't as successful as you would like it to be. You can you can move on from that and, and you know, recover the, the situation. So it's, uh, it's about, you know, being willing to break what you already have as well as accepting that as you're trying these new things because you're moving at this breakneck speed that things are likely to break as you try them. Don't be worried about that. Thank you. Very, very interesting. When we think of breaking, uh, Mark, I'm thinking of the mantra in design thinking, fail fast, fail often. Just keep moving forward. Just keep learning. Is that what we're talking about here? Break things? I think, I think, yes, we are. I think, you know, we don't always want to, you know, a measure of success is not how many times you can break something. Um, so, you know, yes, we need to, we need to, we need to move fast. Yes, things are going to break. I mean, in a, in a perfect world, we'd get everything right first time, right? Even when we're moving at speed. But I think that's, that's not the reality. Um, because, you know, what we're doing and what companies are, are, are trying now, it's, it's, it's really the unknown. So it's inevitable. Um, that things will break, but I suppose the key here is not to be not to be, you know, concerned or fearful of of some short term setbacks or failure. Things will inevitably break, and and you know, to Zuckerberg's quote, right? If you're not if you're not breaking things, you're probably not moving fast enough. 
probably, and I would love to add to his quote, although I know I would never get his permission, be brave, move fast and break things. Be bold, move fast and break things. Because that's what we're talking about here, upending the status quo and so important. And I want to tell you, Mark Giel, that uh, you and, and Torsten Lyduck at SAP sponsored this series. And one of our introductory phrases for all of our Game Changer shows is, this if the status quo isn't working anymore just be bold and and bust open the status quo in the world of business today in the world of everything it just doesn't work i guess a good reference point maybe for professor brown and mark yell just a sidebar here if you'll permit me is status quo sounds like it's something from 10 20 years ago could status quo be something from a year ago in the business world professor brown what's your thought on that what how do we define status quo anymore I think this is a big problem for most organizations because yeah. um, lots, of, lots of organizations are trying to move at multiple speeds at the same time. So they, they tend to have not one business, but many businesses. They tend to have not one product or service, but many. And they tend to have not one culture, but many cultures, particularly if they've grown up over a number of years or made a number of acquisitions or, or tried to reinvent themselves a number of times. So you end up in a situation where you're a, a multi-speed organization, and the idea of speed and agility and moving fast and status quo is really interpreted in a context. It's the context of the part of the organization you're dealing with. So you may have a, an R&D group that's moving at one pace, some business units moving at a different pace, and maybe some, some new cloud-based, service-based infrastructures with a very different pricing and business model that have to work at a completely different rate. And part of the challenge, I think, for leaders in most organizations is trying to map that out, trying to understand the implications of what they do as they move forward in a, in a multi-phased strategy, and trying to keep some control over an organization which is inherently working in a, in a sort of way to, to break out of that control. So I find that um, a, a major conversation I have with most organizations these days. What's the pace of change, and how do you see that across your organization today? Thank you very much for answering that. Love to find out what Mark Eall thinks. Mark, status quo, what does it mean to you and the businesses you work with? Um, I, th- I think something similar. Um, you know, we, we, we see this uh, within some of our partners where they're wrestling with, with how do they continue to grow the businesses, uh, their tr- more traditional businesses, and how do they take advantage of this opportunity that, that digital disruption brings where they need to deliver this agile, this agility on behalf of, of their customers. Um, so they themselves are, are running at these multiple paces based on the different types of business models that they're, they're trying to execute. And the, the challenge in many ways is, is, you know, how quickly are you able to or willing to disrupt your legacy business because in many ways the, the existing business is a legacy business. Um, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about a lot of the, the platform-based businesses that you alluded to at the, start of the, at the start of the show, you know, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, is, is they themselves didn't have a legacy, um, so they, they weren't disrupting that legacy, right? It was the traditional hotel business or the traditional sort of taxi business. That was that was being disrupted, but many of the companies that we deal with and many of our customers are in exactly the situation that, that Alan describes, which is they, they have to get the right balance. Right, they have to they have to still deliver often growth and, and earnings predictability to shareholders because they're public listed businesses, but they also need to make sure they take advantage 
um, of that opportunity, but but in some ways they can't do it too quickly um, because that may have unforeseen sort of consequences. Thank you very much. Thank me, you. Yeah, go ahead, Alan. Hmm? Yeah, if I may, I think, think for me what, what happens in these conversations, Mark, is that uh, I end up talking about three big words. The, the first one is about risk, and we have quite a long discussion about how the business views risk and maybe how the different business units view risk. Um, sometimes it's about operational risk. We can't break things. Sometimes it's about market risk. We've got to do it now. Uh, sometimes it's about risk of being seen to be the first or not being seen to be the first in a market. So we have a conversation around risk and, and how they view that in a, in a digital age. The second conversation we have is, is often around trust. How do they see their organization, their ecosystem, their decision-making authority, their ability to form teams that are self-organizing and self-managed? And where do they see that trust equation being managed from centrally or from, from, the, from the edges of the organization? And then the final one is about value. What value do they, do they think they're creating in the market? How does that value get shared? How does it get, does it get captured? How does it get realized and shared? And then how do they see that, um, that sort of co-creation of value with people in their ecosystem and their clients? And how can they start to create a different value proposition with the people who use their service and the people that help deliver those services so that everybody benefits? And I think those three conversations are at the heart of all of the discussions I have when I talk about digital disruption and agility. Thank you very much. Mark Gill, anything you want to comment back to Alan? I thought that was a, a great addition to this part of the conversation. Um, no, I mean, I, the, the other thing, which maybe it, it, it's part of the, the trust discussion or the trust equation is, is one of culture. And you alluded to this as well at the, at the top of the show, Bonnie, which is that, um, you know, a lot of these changes as we start to think about platform-based business models or we start to think about how do you manage data and business data and get new competitive insights, it, it requires a, a shift in culture. Um, you, mm-hmm. you need to move away from these rigid hierarchies that, that historically, you know, we've, we've run our corporations um, sort of by um, to these sort of smaller, more agile, self-forming um, teams that, that that Alan alluded to. So culture is also is also a big one that that, that we see um, because you know companies aren't always ready aren't always ready for the changes. So you know how do you how do you not only sort of manage that potential business opportunity slash disruption, but also how do you make sure that the organisation itself is is ready for that change by putting in place the right change management and 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 cultural support to, to, to enable the business to shift. Thank you very much. Good, yeah, interesting. Yeah, go ahead, Alan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a great um, sort of business school joke that um, is related to culture, which says that you know business schools like to believe they have a great handle on how businesses and management work. And in reality, they probably understand about 20% of it. And anything they don't understand, they call culture. And it's that big bucket of we're not really quite sure what's going on here. And so we just kind of call it culture and hope that we can deal with it some other way. And, and it's, uh, as, as Mark was saying, in a sense, it's the, it's the big challenge of how we make changes, trying to understand, manage and deal with people, processes, practices, norms, ways of thinking, ways of being. And, and it's incredibly difficult. It is difficult, and and if you think about it, it's difficult for us all personally, for us as individuals who are professionals, to change our mindset on what we do, how we do it, where we work, what our role is in business, even in the world today. It's it's a culture change. It's a sea change. I think 
what, every 10 days something major is happening, whether it's in the news, whether it's in technology, whether it's in healthcare, communications, everything. So, so culture seems to be in change management. We're responsible for it on an individual basis and companies are responsible for it on a, on a much broader basis for multiple people. Alan, does this come up in your business classes, this idea? Uh, you mentioned business school, but is this something that your students are curious about when you teach entrepreneurship and innovation? Do you tell your students you maybe 20 years old or 25, but in the first five years of your working life, your career, you're going to see change as a constant. How do you approach that with them? Prepare them. I think, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a, Thank you. It's a challenge right now for all educators. And I, I think the, 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 the way I look at this right now, so I, I have some, some, some teenage boys who are 16 and 18. And, and I think about how I can advise them in terms of the future. And mm-hmm. I look at it and say, you've probably got at least 50 years of a career in front of you. Yeah. So what can I do to advise you for that career? The best thing I can say to you is you're going to have to think about completely redesigning you and your life and your way of working several times over the next 50 years. You're going to have to sort of completely retread how you work, what you do, and how you do it because so many changes are likely to happen within the environments in which you operate. So you're going to have to find something else to cluster your life around. And it's going to be around problems that you feel passionate about. It's going to have to be people you have trust in. It's going to have to be about the kinds of skills and um, personality characteristics that you think that you have that bring something new or that excite you or that give you an opportunity to work with people. Those are the things you're going to have to start to understand more, that you're going to have to build yourself around. And these sort of more ephemeral things like which particular business models are, are in vogue at the time, which particular tools you use, what an organization means, where your workplace is, they're going to swirl around, and you're going to have to find ways of, of embedding those inside what you know about yourself and what you believe is persistent about you and your way of working and your way of life. And that's a very different conversation to have with people than here's the latest business theory, here's the latest business model, here's a new way of thinking about strategy. So we're trying to find ways of giving them those sorts of insights of what works now to make you employable, but to make you employable not just for this year and next year, it's for your 50-year career, and that's incredibly tough right now. Absolutely. Everything has changed. Mark, any thoughts on that, Mark, you all, on, on how you've uh, – I know you two have been around a little bit, not as long as I have, but Mark, what's your thought on, on this change question, this culture question we're talking about in terms of just everything being disrupted over and over and over again? What do you see? I mean, it has, it, I think it has some some huge implications. I mean, I'm not a, a sort of uh, an expert on psychology. We're actually doing something earlier this week within our team looking at at the different value models, so looking at sort of Maslow's hierarchy, but thinking mm-hmm. through, you know, what are the, the two or three um, values that each of us, um, you know, guide our lives by? And, you know, what, what Alan's alluding to, you know, things like assurance and bonding and even understanding are, are changing very, very quickly, right? If we're, if we're putting this pressure onto us as individuals where, you know, the certainty that we have through, you know, our traditional rules and, and, you know, organizational setup or consistency and trust are starting to, to change on a, on a very dynamic basis. That actually has huge implications for, for us as, as human beings, right? Because, you know, the, the, the theory goes, or at least my understanding of the theory, I could be way off mark here, is that, you know, we, we will tend to 
adopt you know two or three value models and and for you know the vast majority of our life from you know 20 to to probably sort of mid 50s um, through the bulk of our career they are only likely to change through some kind of external factor right it could be a change of job or it could be a change in your relationship status but you know we're not used to changing this on a on a on a sort of a, a semi-annual or, or or annual basis right we maybe change it once or twice in our lifetime um yet you know to be successful in this type of environment maybe we're needing to change these value models you know on a far more uh, progressive and 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 frequent basis and you know how ultimately do we even know how we'll be able to react to that Absolutely. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm so honored that the two of you are going with my sidebar because this was not exactly what we planned for the show. But I sometimes find that there's a word or a phrase in what we're talking about that we just, we don't define it. We don't dive into it. Mark, you've worked with me long enough to know that I like to take what we assume is, let's say the status quo of how we describe this series. Okay, Mark, the status quo is we talk about this disrupting the status quo, but what in the world does it mean for us and the world culture? Culture, talking about who we are, our careers, as Alan said, perhaps a 50-year career. Alan, I didn't know anybody else besides me was working on a 50-year career. I'm happy happy to know that you're optimistic about that for other people. So thank you both. And now I tell you what, we've already learned a lot about both of you, but let's formally do our What's in Your Cup Today segment. So Professor Alan Brown, I have a couple of questions for you. Number one, where are you today? Number two, what's your favorite drink in the the whole wide world that powers you, makes you smile, makes you happy, maybe disrupts your life. And number three, anything new in how you are teaching entrepreneurship and innovation at the Business School at the University of Surrey. Okay, you're up. Great. Well, where I am today is I'm at the University of Surrey in in Guildford in in Surrey, which is um, about 30 or 40 miles south of London. Um, We've been having some hot weather and uh, rather... Um, unusual hot weather for a long period of time in the summer, but it seems to have cooled down a little today. So in my cup are uh, nice cold drinks. So what um, what excites mm. me in the summer is having something nice and cold, lots of ice, and, and making sure that uh, I keep myself well hydrated because uh, it's one of those things that we need to do is, is look after ourselves and keep ourselves sharp. And I think it's very easy um, in, in anything we do to find yourself getting a little stale. And one of the things that I think we have to fight against, particularly in, in, in this kind of agile, digitally disruptive world, is keeping ourselves, uh, keeping ourselves up to date, keeping ourselves working at speed, keeping ourselves alive to opportunity. So uh, the way I always talk to my students about this and, and, and how I try to keep them alive is that I like this idea of what some people call planned serendipity. Mm. The idea that you can be lucky is great, but you can help yourself to be lucky can put yourself in good places. You can keep yourself alive to opportunity. You can keep yourself looking in the right places. So I think that's really key for me. And that's what we're trying to do as we think about our teaching with students. Is, um, I, I think it's easy for particularly academic institutions to be accused of talking either about business or being on business. We very rarely think about being, uh, being in business, working with business. And I think the way in which we're trying to teach now here and, and in other places is that we're trying to align ourselves much more to work with business and in business and work with students on problems to try to apply new ideas in the context that we find them in organizations. And in fact, to be a little less arrogant and say, actually, we learn a lot when we work with and in business 
about the way the world works, about the problems, about things like culture and how opportunities can be can be seized upon. And we bring those back in and we learn as much as we give when we do that. So for us, working with and in businesses is, I think, the mantra we need to take forward in, in business schools and elsewhere. Thank you very much. Very, very interesting. Uh, yes, stay hydrated and stay cool. That's a good way to stay agile. Mark Giel, where are you today? What's in your cup and what's new with you in the world of cloud platform ecosystem and particularly what does ecosystem mean to you? Talk to me. So I'm, I'm actually in central London. So uh, I'm also actually enjoying the fact that it's a little bit cooler today than it has been for, for the last few days. It's actually been wet, which is, uh, which is you know, normally quite usual for, uh, for England, but we, we desperately need the rain at the moment because uh, it has been so hot and dry recently. Um, what am I drinking? Um, as you know, I like to sort of try and come up with a with an obscure drink on, on this show. And I'm actually <laughs> going to reuse one of the drinks from before. I thought actually Alan was going to go with his digital cup again, but uh, I'm glad he, he took a more straightforward approach today. Um, I'm, I'm going to be drinking today a smoky ginger ale from one of my favorite companies at the moment, Fevertree. And I mentioned, I think, before, this, is a, a, this was a startup business that, that uh, basically set the UK... Um, small cap markets by storm by basically going from I think a zero to a billion in market capitalization in a in a in a very very quick time and this was done by being disruptive by taking a step back and what they did was they realized that the Schweppes and and some of the the the, the sort of the big companies had had forgotten how to innovate. Um, and they realized that, you know, in the, the, the premium drinks market that, that actually, um, you know, the majority of a gin and tonic is the tonic. So mm-hmm. don't skimp on the tonic. So they decided to, to go back to sourcing natural products. And, you know, they have a Madagascan cola that, that is sourced or parts of it is sourced from Madagascar. They source quinine for their lemonades and they now have about 14 premium mixers um just yesterday the founders were both took home another 100 million um out of this business because there was a, a sell down of, of some of the equity so you know this is a has been a phenomenally successful business by taking a look back at how you can disrupt by actually thinking through what is it that the consumer really wants Mm-hmm. Um, and really sort of focusing that marketing on them, um, but really showed that they could disrupt a, a market where the, the big incumbents like Schweppes just weren't moving quick enough. So to, to build on, you know, Alan's quote from the start, right, it's, it's, it's the agile that, that are actually eating, um, are starting to eat, you know, those, those larger businesses. And this is exactly what Fevertree did. They went from nowhere to, you know, yes. market leadership in some of their markets and they're doing this with just 14 different mixes. They bring a new drink mm. out every year, um, mm. and that's what sustains the growth. And uh, the founders made some, some really good money yesterday when they sold down their stake uh, yet again. So it's a, a fascinating story, and uh, I, I enjoy drinking their drinks. Well, very nice. And I did just Google Smoky Ginger Ale, and of course I came up with Fever Tree right away, and I found a website called The Whiskey Exchange, Mark. 
I think they, yes, it says, uh, we think you're based in the U.S. Would you like to set this as your default country of delivery? They're ready to sell to me. What can I tell you? Fever Tree, it's hyphenated. Fever Dash Tree Smoky Ginger Ale Single Bottle. Uh, I don't know what 0.95 means in terms of U.S. dollars. That's 0.95 pounds. How much is that, Mark, in U.S.? What would I pay for that bottle? Oh, so what's that? So we're about 130 dollars right so it's probably about um it's probably about a dollar twenty dollar twenty five Okay, and if I went to a bar, it'd probably be ten dollars and ninety five cents We know that okay, so downtown yeah, yeah, <laughs> New York definitely yeah. I'm in Durham, North Carolina, but I'm finding out things are more expensive here than they were on Long Island, New York. So it's always a surprising. It, just a manicure and a pedicure here is is like 50% more expensive than where I was in New York. I Shock and amazement. But Fever Tree, I just want to read this. Fever Tree has used pure smoke. That's one word with a capital P, capital S. Pure smoke technology, a way of creating only clean and enjoyable smoky flavors to create this unique tonic that's perfect with whiskey. The smoke is combined with citrus and earthy ginger for a rounded and refreshing taste. I love the way people describe drinks. It's just, it never ceases to amaze me, the words, the common everyday words they use to describe flavor. Thank you, Mark. I'm, I'm glad you talked about that and, and a great example of disruption. What I'd like to do, gentlemen, is I'm going to tell you, we're not taking a break because it's already 36 after and we are deep into our topic. So what I'd like to do in the remaining minutes we have here is just hit a couple of the discussion statements Al, Professor Alan W. Brown and Mark Gill have sent me from part one of the show. And let's do a little revisit if that's okay with you. So, Alan Brown, I'm looking at the first statement you sent me last time, and I, and I think this is another way of level setting, which I've been trying to do with exploring things like culture and status quo. You say the impact of digital transformation is often seen initially as digitization of assets and artifacts. And you say that may be a useful place to start the journey, but it fundamentally misses the point about what is happening in the new digital economy. Alan Brown, Tell me why. Thanks, Bonnie. Well, I, I think digitization is, is a good start for people, and they often are looking for ways of turning physical assets and, and um, so, so hard assets into something that's virtual, something that they can use online. And that might be, in the past, that was as simple as uh, a paper form becoming a, an online form. Um, right now, it's as, uh, it, you, people are moving other sorts of assets, like um, being able to shop online and so on. So, so we've seen lots of organizations go through the phase where they're looking to see how they can automate, how they can make information accessible online, how they can uh, ensure that there's communication between clients and their organization or across pieces of their organization. And I think that kind of digitization of existing ways of working is really important. Let me give you an example. Um, in the UK, for example, uh, just, just a couple of years ago, uh, they moved to uh, digitize the way in which they taxed cars on the road. So that the big move was you didn't need a, a little paper disc in the windscreen of your vehicle to show that you'd, been, you'd paid your tax for the road, that they mm -hmm. could do that digitally. And, of course, by scanning the number plate, they could tell if you'd, if you'd paid your bill or not. So they, in a sense, they digitize the existing process. But what I was trying to get at is you can then ask a deeper question, which says, if with digitization, why are we actually paying road tax at all? Why do mm -hmm. we have a whole mechanism within government for accepting payment of tax online? Why can't that be done a completely different way by 
adding perhaps some, um, a, a cent or two to the cost of gas so that the tax is paid on how much gas that you buy. And the gas companies, people who are accepting money from gas stations, can be the ones that are collecting money and then delivering it to government. Why can't we add it to the insurance bill? So that you can't be you can't be on the road without being insured. So why not simply add the cost of road tax to that? And the insurance companies could be collecting the money and distributing that in different ways. Mm-hmm. There are whole whole opportunities, set of opportunities by redesigning what it means to think about the way in which you do work in a digital age. Is not simply we can digitize existing processes. Is we can rethink the service we're delivering, the value we're offering, the way that we process information, the way that we communicate, and how we use that information to drive value to ourselves, to our clients, to our supply chain, and to society as a whole. And I think those deeper questions are really the ones that are driving change. When people spin the problem on its head and say, what is it we're trying to do here? What problem are we solving? Are we solving it in the right way? Given what's happening in terms of the feasibility of new technologies, could we do this in a completely different way than we've ever thought it before? And I think once we do that, we get to a different place. Thank you very much. Very interesting insights. Mark, do you all agree or disagree? Anything you want to add to that about what's really happening in the new digital economy? What does it mean? I think I'd, I'd very much agree. I think what's interesting is, is sometimes the, the time it takes to go from that first phase of you know, the digitization of, of the asset through to actually rethinking the business model or doing something fundamentally new. And, you know, I use an example, one of my first, you know, one of my first jobs um, when I was an engineer back at the start of my career um, was was working for a software company that, that started to change the way manufacturers and, and companies built, designed, um, and manufactured um, physical assets, you know, like your mobile phone or your car or your washing machine. And what was interesting was that was digitization. That was digitization that was happening in the in the mid um, and late 90s, um, you know, 20, almost 25 years ago now. Um, and that offered an opportunity for those companies to really change the way they did engineering, to change the way they built and brought products to market. Very few of them were able to make that cultural change and actually start to get the benefits of it. So that digitization actually didn't deliver the value or the, all the value that they were expecting. Now what we're seeing is, is, you know, 20 years on this concept of the digital twin, which is now where every physical asset has its digital twin, where data is being collected, data is being analyzed, data is being processed. Um, and now we're starting to rethink, you know, that asset, that high-value asset um, that has been built, you know, could be, I don't know, a, a, a nuclear power plant where they're now monitoring the information and now they're able to predict when failure is going to happen. So rather than running the risk of, you know, some major uh, natural disaster or catastrophe happening, they're able to predict and actually go in and, and proactively now change. So they're using that digital asset or that digital twin now to fundamentally change the way that they manage and, you know, improve safety, um, reduce costs, ultimately re- improve growth. So, you know, yes, digitization is one phase. It doesn't necessarily lead all the benefits, but it can take 5, 10, maybe even 20 years before that next change. Now, this is why, 
you know, we need to be agile because we probably can't afford it to take 20 or 25 years going forward because the, the industry is not waiting or the competition aren't waiting that so long these days. Thank you very much. Very interesting. Um, Alan, I'm not going to go back to you on this one. I'm going to go to what I call a reality check, some statements from Mark here about what happens if you don't, if you don't make the cultural change, if you don't become agile, if you don't look behind your status quo to see what you need to do. And Mark has some statistics here. Mark, I assume he's still pretty current. You say the life expectancy of a business has fallen dramatically with the average age of an SNP 500 constituent now less than 20 years down from 60 years in the 1950s. That is dramatic. Uh, what's, what's happening with the reality check. What's going to happen to a business if they don't? If they say, well, we've always done it this way, and gee, we still have a lot of customers, and dang, if we're going to change now, it's a family business, or gee, we've got too many employees to make any real change. Is this the fate that it's going to be the handwriting's on the wall for them? What do you see, Mark? Well, it's trying to avoid that Kodak moment, mm-hmm. right? I think that, uh, you know, on, on one hand, yes, that the the average age has come down, but also you know the the, the time spent or the time to get into um, the, the the sort of the major indices has, has come down significantly, and it's new types of business model, right? And the the the, the new entrants tend to be these platform based business models where very quickly they're able to build an ecosystem, um, deliver value within that ecosystem, and, and look at new ways of, of of ultimately generating revenues, right? They, that's how they're they're valued, and I think that. If you if you don't you know take advantage of that opportunity, it's it's a huge risk because you know somebody else is going to be taking that growth. Somebody else is going to be um, making that sale with that customer or selling that service um, to that customer. Um, so absolutely, you do, you don't you want to avoid the the Kodak moments. But I think also it, it requires a very different way of, of of interacting within the ecosystem. One of the things that we're starting to to think through is is. The opportunity with platform in many ways is, is, is for SAP is not how do we, you know, sell more software or, or, or more cloud services to our customers, but how do we actually enable our customers to manage their extended ecosystems more effectively and deliver that additional value by driving that network effect or driving that business model change or just enabling them to be far more efficient and deliver more value um, to, to, to their consumers and as well as their ecosystem partners in general so you know it's a it's a, it's the reality of life and and if you don't focus on it there's a risk that that you go x growth and uh you know you're no longer relevant yep and i have another statistic that was uh, reported in 2017 by credit suisse i found the source of that one thank you mark here's another headline from just uh december 2016 not that long ago fortune 500 firms 1955 versus 2016 only 12% remain thanks to the creative destruction, I didn't say disruption, creative destruction that fuels economic prosperity. Any comments on that, Mark? And then I want to get Alan Brown on it. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's, the, it's the other side, right? It's the other side of the, the equation. It's a, it's a great opportunity, and we see the new companies coming in, but those that don't, you know, it, it, it potentially destroys um, their their markets it potentially destroys um, you know the, the the foundation of their business that they've built for, for many many years and this is just happening so so quickly and that's that's why this agility is 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 so critical 
um, because you can't afford not to be quick now. Thank you very much. Alan Brown, what do you think? Can companies afford not to be quick? Yeah, I think this is a, the dilemma for most existing and, and mature organizations or even those startups that are now reaching the scale-up stage. And you know, the, the, the gales of creative destruction that uh, is, is the quote from, from Schumpeter in the 1930s was true then and it's true now that what, what happens is as, as creativity changes the marketplace, as, as Clay Christensen says in his uh, Innovative Dilemma, what happens is you start to offer new value propositions to new markets. And what the, the innovator's dilemma sort of, sort of crudely stated is that if you keep doing the things that made you successful, it'll eventually kill you because you'll miss the changes in the marketplace. You'll be so focused on serving the same value proposition to the same market that what you'll do is optimize that to the point at which you'll see that somebody else will come in with a different value proposition and you'll miss it. And you'll, you'll, you'll push that to the side saying, no, we own this market. We, we know how it works. We understand this value. We've got people out in the field delivering. And if you miss the changes going on around you, you'll end up being the masters of a market that's shrinking and shrinking too fast for you to be able to succeed. So I think most organizations are trying to manage their own markets where they do have some heritage and some footprint and some experience, while at the same time trying to understand what these new market needs might be, what these new customers want, what these new opportunities might be to go from product to service to platform to outcome. And they're trying to think these through in new ways. And I think the difficulty for those organizations is that they're, they're wanting to do these new things in, in smaller experimental ways and then mm-hmm. bring them into the organization and infect the organization so that the organization can radically change. And that's really tough for them to do. And I think we've seen many organizations, if you've quoted, that haven't made that jump. And we've seen many that are going through that right now that will end up having to completely redesign themselves in new ways in order to survive. Um, And I think we're in for quite an interesting few years as we see some of that working its way through through large corporations. I think so. Uh, Alan, while I have you, I want to look at one of your statements from the list you sent me before the show, and you talk about a tailspin. Let's talk about, we've talked about how you have to look at your legacy businesses, how you have to examine what status quo means to you, look at the culture change, the change management, how fast can you be versus how big are you or do you aspire to be. Let's talk about tailspin. What do you see companies doing when they go into this tailspin saying, wow, look at the new entrance in my market. They're taking away my the wallet share of my customers. They're taking away the business mindset of companies that used to consider my organization top of mind when they needed X, Y, or Z. Now my customers, my prospects are looking elsewhere because of the excitement of these new entrants. What happens to the tailspin? Do they get confused? Do they marshal all their forces? Do they call everybody into the company auditorium that day and say, did everybody see the news? We got to do something about this. How do, how do you see companies the reality check? Not what you would like to see them do, but what happens when they go into a tailspin? Alan and then Mark. Yeah, I think that there are some, some different patterns that we see in organizations. Um, so let, let me give an illustration of something that happened to me just very recently where I was with a large utility company talking a little bit about, um, you know, come in and tell us about being agile. So you go to see the mid to high level management that says, we've got to be agile, we've got to be agile. It's now one of our core values for, for 2018. And um, it, it's quite surprising to them if you start the conversation saying, okay, agility is about moving fast. 
um, mm-hmm. changing the value proposition, uh, creating new teams that can work around an opportunity. So tell me, what are you willing to give up? What do you think you're going to give up to gain this flexibility and agility? Would you like to give up um, oversight of some of the projects so you don't have the three-year plan that you beat people up on every month? Will you give up some control so that people can make decisions further down in the organization and create self-managed teams? Will you give up some of the metrics that you've had before that measure the outputs and very clearly manage the sort of death march projects along the outputs that you create so that you won't have those anymore and you won't be able to rely on this kind of false idea of progress? Will you give up? And you go through this and they say, no, no, we're not giving up any of those things. We just want to be agile. Mm-hmm. And you say to them, but, but you can't, it can't just sprinkle magic agile pixie dust on top of your organization. You've got to think through what it is that the organization is going to do to change in order to create that flexibility, in order to create that ability to, for you to um, coordinate around the opportunities as they emerge, in order for you to see market, um, market advances and decide how to move on those at pace. Uh, and, it, and you go through that conversation, and I think what most organizations do when they're in a tailspin or in a panic is they think they can get over this and get around this by either acquiring a new fancy company or changing the furniture and the offices in order to have drop-in spaces with nice tables and, and free beer at the end of the day or mm-hmm. um, thinking about um, you know uh, changing some of their uh, business practices so that people come in without a tie. You know, they, they, they get lost in the ephemeral things without focusing in on what do we fundamentally need to rethink in our organization around these ideas of risk, trust, and value? And what will that mean for our organization? And I think that's what um, I've tried to spend some of my time doing is looking at that somewhat conceptually and fundamentally and then finding some very real concrete steps that they can take in the next few weeks, few months to show progress against those. And I think that's the balance that uh, um, I think most organizations need to apply in order to move forward in in a consistent and meaningful way. Thank you very much, Alan. And Mark, you know what? We're already in our crystal ball predictions round, so I'm going to use that probably as Professor Alan Brown's prediction of what companies need to do. Mark Eall, what do you what do you see going forward in terms of platform-based businesses, not just, as Alan said, so picturesquely sprinkling the agility fairy dust over the company and saying, let's all have beer and get rid of our ties. Not going to cut it. Mark Eall, what do you what do you see reality check for what companies really need to do? You can make that in the form of a prediction. What will they be doing? I think in many ways they 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 have to in, embrace the change, right? I mean, part of the the, the challenge that, that the companies have is to, to Alan's point, right? They they talk about doing something. Um, but, but they're not really sort of embracing the change and taking advantage of that opportunity. Um, you look at the, the differences in, in IBM and Microsoft's performance, let's say, in, in the shift to the cloud is a good example of that. Um, but as it relates to, 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 to platform, I think it's, it, it's really a, it's a different way of thinking. Um, you know, we, we traditionally, many businesses have been built on these very sort of linear um, you know, business models where I need to add additional resource or I need to make additional investments and that investment will give me a return and, and I get steady growth, but I don't get um, super normal growth. Whereas what, what we've seen over the last four or five years is really by embracing um, the network effect that platforms give, 
you can very quickly scale your organization. You can now start to get sort of nonlinear, um, nonlinear growth or exponential growth in, within the business. So, but, but today there are a relatively small number of business models, right? It's around collaboration. It's around sort of innovation and, and marketplaces. There's an element of orchestration um, that, that can happen. I think companies need to, to, to look through a different lens in terms of what do these platform business models mean for them and then make sure that they're really executing against that opportunity. It's not about paying lip service and saying, look, I am a platform. It's actually fundamentally making the changes to your business, to your organizational setup, to the investments in technology that you need to take advantage of that. Um, and then, you know, building the trust um, to ensure that the, 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 the ecosystem gets the value as well, because it, it has to be a it has to be a, a win 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 a win for the customer, a win for the ecosystem, and a win for um, for the for the company that's, that's that's driving that change. Thank you very much. I want to thank both of you, Mark. This was just a wonderful conversation. Do you agree between you and Alan and me? I think we really. It's always a pleasure. To, it's always a pleasure to to have a discussion with Alan. It's always a pleasure to be on the show, Bonnie. So yes, always. You're you're very kind. Thank you. I I thought this was wonderful. We went we went off the beaten path and we abandoned the status quo. Changed the whole format of the show. Alan Brown, thank you for taking time out of your day. Your connection was marvelous, by the way. You were clear and crisp, and I'm glad we got you on a great phone line. And thank you so much for sharing your insights. And I will say your students are very lucky to have you. And Marky. Y'all, you always bring a good show, a good topic. So I'm going to say a shout out to Torsten Leduck at SAP for initially sponsoring the series and for bringing Mark Eall on board. Mark, just wonderful. You have a couple more shows left to do this year, and I can't wait to see what's coming up next on the series. And a shout out to Aaron at the Business Channel, our intrepid engineer. He's young, but he's intrepid. I'm Bonnie D. Graham, and here's my call to action. Fasten your seatbelt. If you're a business still working with the status quo, you'd better fasten it now because something's going to disrupt you. It's just going to happen. So what are you waiting for? Go out and be a game changer today, just like Professor Alan W. Brown at University of Surrey, just like Mark Eall at SAP, and maybe just like me. Have a great day. Bye-bye. Thanks again for tuning in to Game Changing Business Model Disruption. The best-run business is run SAP. To keep the conversation going, tweet your questions and comments to Twitter hashtag SAPRADIO. Please join host Bonnie D. Graham on Thursdays on the Business Channel. We wish you a positively game-changing week.